In a letter written to a man named William Short on April 13th of 1820, Thomas Jefferson shared some of his religious views. He wrote, But while this syllabus is meant to place the character of Jesus in its true and high light, as no impostor himself, but a great reformer of the Hebrew code of religion, it is not to be understood that I am with him in all his doctrines. I am a materialist. He takes the side of spiritualism. He preaches the efficacy of repentance toward forgiveness of sin. I require a counterpoise of good works to redeem it, etc., etc. Thomas Jefferson seemed to have a positive view of Jesus, but clearly understood that he did not align with the teachings of Jesus. Most notably, he said that Jesus preached the efficacy of repentance toward forgiveness of sin, but he said that I require a counterpoise or a counterweight of good deeds for a life to be redeemed. In his opinion, on which he seemed to place a lot of weight, it was necessary for a person to live their life in such a way that their good deeds outweighed their bad deeds. Indeed, this was the path to redemption. While he did not view Jesus as an imposter, he had some harsher words for the disciples of Jesus. He said, Of this band of dupes and imposters, Paul was the great Coriophius and firm corrupter of the doctrines of Jesus. He regarded Paul as the Coriophius or the leader of the chorus of the disciples. And he believed that Paul, as the leader of the chorus, was primarily responsible for corrupting the teachings of Jesus. Paul was primarily responsible, but the other disciples were also dupes and imposters. And when you read the New Testament, you will find that Thomas Jefferson's negative view of the Apostle Paul was nothing new. The smear campaign against Paul began very early in his ministry and has persisted throughout history even to this day. Many people have critiqued Paul and have said he got it wrong. Many people have tried to drive a wedge between Jesus and Paul as if they taught different things or as if Paul corrupted the teachings of Jesus. In our passage this morning, we are going to see how Paul defended himself against some of the attacks against him coming from the false teachers who infiltrated the churches in Galatia. And hopefully we will see and understand that Paul's defense of himself was not self-serving, but served a greater purpose. I'm going to read Galatians chapter 1, verses 10 through 24, and I encourage you to follow along. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. 
and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I, don't, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. In Galatia, Paul was being criticized and undermined by teachers who came after him and preached a contrary gospel. Paul's burden, therefore, in our passage, was to impress upon the Galatians that his message was not his own idea and it had not been taught him by other men. Rather, he had received the gospel directly from Jesus Christ independently from any man, including the apostles in Jerusalem. In verse 10, Paul said that if he were still trying to please man, he would not be a servant of Christ. Here we see that being a man pleaser and a servant of Christ are incompatible. You have to choose one or the other. If you are seeking to please man, then you are not serving Jesus. If you are serving Jesus, then your goal is not to please man. Now, the reality is that every one of us makes decisions at times where our primary motivation is to please man. In other words, I think it's a safe bet to say that none of us who are Christians perfectly serve Jesus. But there is grace for us. There is grace for us even when we fail to serve Jesus even as we are called to. There is grace for us even when we seek to please man rather than to please Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And while there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and while it's good for us to admit that we fail in this area, we still need to be clear that pleasing man and serving Christ are incompatible. We also need to be honest that all of us at one time or another have given into the temptation to please man. In light of this, we need to rest in the grace of Christ, knowing that he sees our man-pleasing tendencies, yet still loves us, cares for us, and desires to use us in his service. And when we understand these things, we are able to fight to put to death our man-pleasing tendencies, not from a place of discouragement and despair, but from a place of freedom and hope. Christ wants you to be able to put to death any man-pleasing tendencies. And as you do so, he wants you to know that there is no condemnation when you are in him. We also need to differentiate between pleasing man and serving man. When you are seeking to please man, you are seeking to get something. You are seeking to get praise, get approval, get respect, get affirmation, and so on. Or when you are seeking to please man, you are avoiding doing what is good and right in the eyes of the Lord. When you are seeking to serve man, you are seeking to give something. 
As servants of Christ, we care deeply about other people. We want to do good to others. We want to bless others, serve others, encourage others, build others up. Being a servant of Christ doesn't mean you disregard other people, but it does mean that you don't look to other people to fulfill your deepest needs. And it means that you don't avoid doing what is good and right in the eyes of the Lord to keep people happy. When we serve Christ, we are free to serve one another without the need for approval, praise, respect, reformation. Not that receiving these things is a bad thing. It's good to give respect and receive respect and so on. But when you're seeking to please man, you're demonstrating that you need to get this from someone else. And Christ wants us to be free of this. When we serve Christ, we will sometimes say and do things that will not be well received. Paul said that if he were trying to please man, he would not be a servant of Christ. If he were trying to please man, he would not have written this letter to the Galatians. He would not have confronted them in the way that he did. But he was a servant of Christ, and the gospel was at stake. Therefore, he could not waste time seeking to please man. In verses 11 through 24, he unpacked that in greater detail, particularly as it related to his gospel ministry. In verse 11, he said that the gospel he preached was not man's gospel. The good news of God's salvation in Jesus Christ did not originate with man. It is not a man-made idea. He was a servant of Jesus Christ, and therefore he faithfully preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. He did not invent a message to appease the sensibilities of man. The very nature of the gospel message is evidence of this. Virtually every man-made religion involves doing works in order to get to God or to earn God's favor. Or in the words of Thomas Jefferson, requires a counterpoise of good works to redeem a life. In our sinful nature, our hearts are inclined to find ways to justify ourselves through our own works or deeds. We prefer a religion whereby we have some control rather than acknowledging we are helpless. We prefer a religion whereby we have something to offer rather than acknowledging we are needy. We prefer a religion where we get some credit rather than acknowledging we are unable to contribute to our salvation. The gospel takes aim at our pride, and that tends to make us uncomfortable. In the book of Revelation, we read how Jesus confronted the church in Laodicea who thought highly of their own self-sufficiency. In Revelation 3.17, he said, For you say... I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The Laodiceans thought they were good. We're good. We've got it. Our lives are good. We got good jobs, got good houses. Kids are fine. We got our act together. We're fine. We're good. What they failed to realize is that was far from the truth. 
The spiritual reality was, though, on the outside, they appeared to have it all together. They appeared to be fine. They appeared to be self-sufficient. The reality was that they were wretched, poor, pitiable, blind, and naked. Brothers and sisters, we would do well that those, to realize that those words describe us. No one appreciates being called that. No one appreciates being characterized in that way. But we too are wretched, poor, pitiable, blind, and naked. Those words describe us. There is no room for pride. There is no room for self-sufficiency. There is no room for self-justification. Do you see how this is not a man-made message? The message of the gospel confronts our pride, our desire for control, and our desire to justify ourselves. Jesus wants you to go to him. But you will only go to him in the way that you need to go to him when you recognize your condition when you understand the reality of your spiritual state, when you recognize how needy you are, I encourage you to use those words when you pray. Go before the Lord and say, Lord, I am wretched. I am poor. I am pitiable. I am blind. I am naked. I come before you in this way. Go to Jesus in that way. If you think, I'm good, my life is fine, my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, then you won't go to Jesus. You might give him a nod. You might give him a tip of the cap. You might have a positive word to say about him like Thomas Jefferson. But you won't go to him until you realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You've got to let go. You've got to let go of your pride. You've got to let go of your need to control. You've got to let go of your desire to justify yourself. You've got to let go and go to Jesus. And that is not an easy message to receive and embrace. That does not appeal to our sensibilities. By faithfully proclaiming the gospel without compromise, Paul was clearly not trying to please man, but was serving Jesus Christ. Moreover, the message that he proclaimed was not made up by man, nor did he receive it from man. Again, the very nature of the message is evidence of this. But in verses 12 through 24, he also included a little bit of a biological sketch to prove his point. He emphasized that he was not taught the gospel by man. Instead, he received the gospel through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Almost every Christian has been taught the gospel by someone else. This is a good thing. Every follower of Jesus ought to be looking for opportunities to teach the gospel to others. And we ought to thank God for those who have taught the gospel to us. However, Paul and the other apostles played a unique role in redemptive history as they were eyewitnesses of Jesus and received the gospel directly from him. Paul had a first-hand encounter with the risen Lord Jesus who appeared to him 
and spoke directly to him. I want to reiterate a point I made a couple of weeks ago, as I believe it bears repeating here, in light of what Paul wrote in verse 12. Paul did not suffer and die for something that was taught to him by another man. He did not suffer and die for a tradition that was handed down to him. He said that he had a first-hand encounter with the resurrected Jesus. If Jesus had not actually appeared to him, he was lying. The only other option is that he was crazy or delusional, but there is no evidence whatsoever in his writings or any other historical sources that he was crazy or delusional. Either Jesus appeared to him or he was a liar. The problem with the theory that he was a liar is that people usually tell lies for the sake of self-preservation or self-advancement. They usually don't tell a lie in order to take a beating. Paul's claim that Jesus appeared to him, revealed the gospel, and called him to be an apostle led him to live a life where he experienced tremendous hardship and suffering and was likely executed. Listen to how Paul described his life as an apostle in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four through 28. He said, five times I've received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me with my anxiety for all the churches. He could have avoided all of this if he would have continued in his former life of Judaism as a Pharisee. It is not uncommon for people to die for their sincerely held wrong beliefs, but it is uncommon for someone to die for a lie when there is no good reason for them to do so. In verse 12, Paul claimed to receive the gospel through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And the evidence from his life strongly supports this claim. In verses 13 to 14, he provided a brief summary of his life and pursuits before he became a Christian. He was a Pharisee who advanced in Judaism because of his zeal for the traditions of his fathers. He was so zealous, in fact, that he persecuted the church. He violently persecuted Christians. His goal was to completely stamp out the church. The very existence of the church was completely and utterly unacceptable to him. The law and the traditions of his fathers were so central to his life and identity that he was willing to violently oppose any perceived threats to them. In his letter to the Philippians, he provided a snapshot of his former life in Judaism. In chapter 3, verses 3 through 6, he said, For we are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
Do you see how his identity was completely and utterly wrapped up in his life of Judaism? That is who he was. That is why he lived. That is what animated him. That was the reason he got out of bed in the morning. This was who he was. He wasn't looking for God's grace as though he believed he was in great need of God's grace. He was fighting against Christ, and he had no interest or desire to change his mind. There was no reason for him to invent the gospel message that he proclaimed. But then something happened that completely and utterly changed the trajectory of his life. The Lord, who set Paul apart before he was born, called him by his grace and revealed Jesus to him so that he would preach the gospel among the Gentiles. John Stott said he neither deserved mercy nor asked for it, yet mercy found him and grace called him. Paul's conversion was rather unique. The Lord needed to knock him down and blind him so that Paul would recognize and see his blindness. And isn't it amazing to think that God set Paul apart before he was born? He was set apart before he was born, yet he spent a big chunk of his life completely wrapped up and immersed in Judaism. He had thoroughly developed his convictions and habits. He was set apart before he was born to preach the gospel, yet he had a period of time where he persecuted the church and those who preached the gospel even unto death. Sometimes, if not most of the time, we have difficulty understanding how and the why the Lord chooses to accomplish his will in the way that he does. Sometimes we have difficulty understanding why he ordains certain things to take place. We have difficulty understanding the timeline by which he operates. What we see is that oftentimes the Lord chooses to use trials, pain, suffering, and loss to bring about his good purposes. He ordains events we would not choose. He takes longer than we would like. Paul's story is a reminder of that. But his story is also a reminder that God faithfully carries out his plan in his way, and his timing is good. After describing his conversion and calling to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, Paul provided three reasons why the Galatians could trust that the gospel was not taught to him by man. Rather than consulting with anyone after his conversion, he first went to Arabia. He spent about three years there. Doing what exactly? We don't know. But he wasn't consulting with anyone. Secondly, he went to Jerusalem, but only for a short time. After his conversion and three years in Arabia, the gospel was clear in his mind and well formulated. By the time he reached Jerusalem, he did not need the apostles there to explain the gospel to him. Moreover, he was only there for 15 days and only visited with Peter and James. Finally, he went to the far north of Syria and Cilicia, far from Jerusalem, a place he did not return to for 14 years. Paul provided this timeline of events to emphasize the independence of the gospel he preached, not independent in the sense that it was different than the gospel that the apostles in Jerusalem preached. He was making the point, though, that he was not merely doing the bidding of the Jerusalem apostles. He did not invent the gospel message himself, 
And he was not merely repeating the message that had been taught him by the others. The fact that the message he proclaimed aligned with the gospel proclaimed by the Jerusalem apostles was a testament that the message was true and from the Lord. He wasn't defending his apostleship to get more respect. He wasn't sharing his testimony so they would be impressed with him. He didn't provide this biological sketch to boost his ego. No, the purpose of telling the Galatians these details from his life was to strengthen their faith. He wanted them to understand that the gospel he preached is true and trustworthy. His purpose in defending himself and his gospel served his other purposes in the letter. I think it is important for us to see the purpose of his defense in the context of the entire letter. One of the patterns we see in the letters of Paul is first an emphasis on gospel theology followed by an emphasis on application or gospel living. For example, when you read the book of Ephesians, you will find that the chapters 1 through 3 focus more so on the glorious truths of the gospel, while chapters 4 through 6 focus more on how we are called to live in light of the gospel. You see, we as followers of Jesus are called to have a good, right, sound understanding of the glorious truth of the gospel. And as we go deeper and grow in our understanding of the gospel, it is to shape who we are and how we live. Right application, gospel living, requires a good, sound understanding of the gospel. But in Galatians, there's an added wrinkle. Paul begins by defending his authority to preach the gospel and by defending the trustworthiness of the gospel he proclaimed. He then moves to declaring important gospel truth before unpacking implications of the gospel. He wanted the Galatians to trust the gospel, understand the gospel, and rightly apply the gospel. And brothers and sisters, we want to be continually and rightly applying the truth of the gospel to our heart, our hearts and our lives. In Romans 8, 28 through 29, we read, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. If you are a Christian... And this verse tells you God's will for your life. If you are a Christian, God's will for your life is for you to be conformed to the image of his son. God's will for your life is for you to become more and more like Jesus. The Lord does not want you to remain stagnant in your faith. The Lord wants you to be growing continually, steadily, every day of your life until the day that you die and you are welcomed into glory. You are to be growing in Christ-likeness. And one of the most important ways we become more like Jesus is by applying the truth of the gospel to our hearts and lives but we will only apply the gospel when we trust and understand the gospel. And our passage this morning aims to strengthen our trust in the gospel message. Paul was not, in fact, a corrupter of the doctrines of Jesus. 
No, he faithfully proclaimed the message Jesus gave him. We can trust the gospel message. We can stake our lives on it. The question I have for you right now is this. Does your life reflect a conviction that the gospel is true? Does your life reflect a conviction that the gospel is not from man, but from God? I think we need to be careful that we are not approaching the gospel casually or lightly in the way that we would approach a man-made idea. The gospel is not merely one good idea among many. It is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. Moreover, the gospel has the power to shape the believer to become more like Jesus. Do you understand that God has placed his power in the gospel? And that's the power that is at work in you to help you become more like Jesus. Do you study the gospel as though it is true, as though it is from God, knowing that God has placed his power in the gospel? The evidence that you have a conviction that the gospel is true and from God is that you will seek to have your thoughts, attitudes, motivations, words, and deeds shaped by the gospel. Who or what is shaping you? What voices do you give your time and attention? Who or what is shaping you? How are you being shaped? Are you being shaped primarily by the gospel of Jesus Christ daily? Are you seeking and studying and turning to the gospel occasionally, lightly, casually, or as if it is from God for you with the power to shape you and change you and transform you? Brothers and sisters, let's pray that God will give us a deep-seated conviction that the gospel is not man-made, but from God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed your gospel to us in your word, and we thank you that your gospel is powerful, powerful to save all who believe, and powerful to continually change us and transform us, to conform us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, as Paul's aim was to strengthen the confidence of the Galatians in the trustworthiness and the truth of the gospel, we pray that you would do that work in us here and now through the, work, through the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you will give us a deep-seated conviction that the gospel is not man-made but from you. Give us this confidence. Help us to believe. And we pray that we will therefore be continually shaped by the gospel. And we humbly ask this of you in Jesus' name. Amen.